Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We would like to get into some listener feedback this season, so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything even tangentially related to the podcast, you can send an email to Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, at tracknerds.com, or hit me up on Twitter, where my handle is, at tracknerds. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Okay, so today we are dealing with the 2005... Steven Spielberg movie Munich, basically taking its title from the massacre at the Munich Olympic Games in 1972, and then some fictionalized events based on actual things in the aftermath of that. Well, the, so that it's it's based on what's called Operation Wrath of God, which to this day, people who claim to have been involved with Wrath of God and, uh, you know, Mossad and the Israeli government itself, they differ on how much of that uh, operation is, you know, actually existed, how much of the story that people tell about it is accurate. Because this, the, the movie Munich is based on a book called Vengeance, which is about Operation Wrath of God. But I mean, yeah, to, even to this day, uh, Mossad and the Israeli government say that, that his uh, is accurate. But some of this stuff did definitely happen. Like they, there, you know, there were definitely Mossad guys killing terrorists after the uh, the 1972 Olympic massacre. But how many and to what degree is a matter of contention? Yes. So actually, though, similar to what we did with some episodes earlier this season, I do want to go back through and give a brief history of Israel and Palestine. Which is obviously going to be one of the more daunting ones. Okay, so this is part this is part one of a seventy part series <laughs> for real. So obviously, historically, like old, you know, two thousand, three thousand years ago, biblical times, this part of the world is where the kind of the the Jewish people first kind of identified their space and kind of this is where they were concentrated, but this is where they quote unquote started. And so they felt a lot of ties to this, even as then over the centuries, they kind of became more dispersed and weren't as concentrated within this part of the world as they previously had been. So you have Christianity comes and actually becomes a major religion in the areas. Even after the Muslims come in and kind of even take over, it's still kind of a majority Christian region. And then eventually becomes a majority Muslim region in about the 13th century. And meanwhile, Jews are kind of, they, yeah, they've been persecuted for thousands of years. So they're kind of struggling to find a place to call their own. They, you know, end up in pockets of Europe, but then kind of get, you know, pushed away there. We've talked about places like the Pale of Settlement in Western Russia, where they, again, were kind of allowed to concentrate, but uh, were definitely abused is not a strong enough word, but harassed and and then actually they spent a lot of time coming then even back to the Ottoman Empire where the Muslims were largely accepting of other religions at the time. And so that was even a popular place, which of course then leads to an increased population in the Israel area and the whole Arab world at large. Then you also see them heading over to the United States, which is known for its religious tolerance. And then they do kind of, you know, as you get into the 18th, 19th century coming back into Western Europe that's a little more accepting of having them around. So the bigger, the biggest shift, though, is around the end of the 19th century, and you start to have this call, or basically when you start to have these Zionist movements, and the Jewish people who we've just kind of mentioned have spent two millennia just becoming 
disparate all over the world, there's kind of a call to let's go back to our, you know, quote unquote, promised land of, of Israel from back in the day. So there's no Israeli country at this time, but the Ottoman Empire is mostly okay with them being around and they kind of start moving back. Then as you get into World War One, this ties into a lot of stuff we talked about during Lawrence of Arabia. So as mm-hmm. you have the Ottoman Empire collapsing and the Arabs want their autonomy away from the Turks as that's happening, and then Britain ends up in control of everything, and because it has a good relationship with the Jewish people in Western Europe, they basically recognize as World War One is coming to an end that... We want to make sure we set up a home for the Jewish people in Israel. And what is set up at the time, basically they're taking the country of Palestine and giving half of it to Israel. But again, calling it the country of Palestine is a little misleading because it was part of the Ottoman Empire. So basically the Palestinian region gets split between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And the Jews are like, this seems cool. And... It's it basically kind of just is a rough piece for a few decades until following right. World War II, and you have an even greater influx from Europe into Israel. And the the deal that the Britons set up in 1918 is basically set to expire in 1947 to 1948, and Israel declares itself basically the British have lost control post World War II, and. Israel now says, so instead of this being a British area where both Jews and Muslims live, the Israelis and the Palestinians, it's now the Brits are like, we're out. And Israel's like, and we're a country. And the rest of the Arab world is like, uh, no. So the war that basically immediately has everyone in the Arab world against Israel, kind of surprisingly, Israel wins. So even though they're this small country with everyone against them, they succeed and actually take over more of that area that was originally designi- designated for the Palestinians. And then now what we've seen since then is just, what is that, seven decades worth of conflict. And the Palestinians are recognized by actually most of the world. I didn't even realize that since we're in one of the countries that doesn't recognize them. Most of the world recognizes Palestine as a sovereign nation. We're just part of the few that don't. But of course, it's all of North America, Japan, Australia, and Western Europe. Those are the groups that we deal with most that don't recognize Palestine as a sovereign nation, but the rest of the world does. And then, of course, you have all kinds of issues with the areas that were supposed to be designated for Palestine, Israel, because they have the military might and they're in charge have all kinds of settlements so it's like okay we're gonna put we're gonna colonize the palestinian areas and then you have these fanatical organizations that are basically terrorist organizations from palestine that have no other recourse but to resort to terrorism but then israel doubles back on punching hard at them anyway that's the conflict in a nutshell so when you get to the munich olympics in 1972 a group of Palestinians, it, and what do they call them? They're the Black Sunday or Black September. Black September, which is a uh, is an offshoot, I guess, of the of the PLO, which is a Palestinian Liberation Organization, and then an offshoot of that organization, uh, the the Black September Organization, the Black September Movement. Eight Black September members took eleven um, Israeli hostages in the Olympic Village in Munich. There's actually there is um, a kind of like an interesting story as to why this specific Olympics was kind of the perfect storm for this to happen. So you have, 
you know, obviously the Palestinians are upset because you, you had the, the six day war, which you talked about before between Egypt, Syria, Jordan, uh, Iraq and Lebanon fought Israel in the six day war. That was in 1967. So this, that's five years prior to this. Mm. Also, you have uh, this is the first Olympics in Germany since uh, the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, um, that yeah. was like, you know, obviously is a huge blight on the history of Germany. You go back and look at pictures of that Olympics. There are swastikas everywhere. There's Nazis everywhere. Hitler is there. So Germany is really trying to clean up their image as far as the Olympics are concerned. Because of that, they did not want to display any kind of militaristic image. So there were there was no armed security around Olympic Village. Um, there was a little bit of unarmed security, but like they wanted to make it like, you know, open, you know, we're we're here for peace and love in the Olympics and, you know, be as least fascist as possible. <laughs> yes, exactly. Basically, they said the 1936 Olympics, we're going to do the opposite of that. But what that allowed to happen was then eight terrorists could then sneak into Olympic Village with with guns and, and take a bunch of, of hostages. So there were wow. uh, two hostages killed during the initial assault. And then they started a, a you know, a, a negotiation that the German authorities did. Um, the Israelis offered to help uh, the, the negotiations and, and help with the response to this. But the Germans declined the help, even though Israel had a dedicated like anti-terrorism uh, organization in Mossad and Germany at the time did not. It was just, it was basically like just cops, just regular cops is who was dealing with this. Um, which is why when you see in the movie, they had German cops dress up as uh, athletes and try and like do a, like a sneak attack on the terrorists. But they were doing this in front of the world news media so the terrorists just saw them on TV getting ready to raid them and said, you know, hey, don't do that or we're going to kill the hostages. Right. Yeah. They showed that in the movie, too. They're like, we're watching it on TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, you know, in addition to not having great security to start out with, they also didn't have a very well organized response. And there was a lot of pressure from the Olympics to like, hey, let's get this hostage thing over with so we can get on with the Olympics. Like, we don't want this to be this drawn-out thing. Oh, right, where it lasts a week and we can't do anything. And right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they so I, they actually they resumed the games even while the hostage situation was still going on. So, like, there are terrorists holding Israeli athletes hostage and competitions are still ongoing, like, the next day. Yeah, that would not that would not happen today. Are you no? Just, yeah, it's not, not even just like the Twitter verse, but just like the whole idea is that's interesting. That's I don't know where that shift would have occurred. That's interesting that back then they're like it's kind of the show must go on, and now we're like, uh, well, yeah, we might continue it, but we're going to have the whole world right. dealing with this first. It's got to be a social media thing. It's like you only had the you know thirty minute news at night that was telling you what was going on yeah. in some newspapers, and so I think maybe your attention span is like, well, yeah, why aren't the Olympics still happening then? I, I don't know. That's bizarre that they didn't. Yeah. they didn't stop. Well, it. and and you know, for 
a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's probably, it's unfortunate to say this, but they were probably more concerned with the outcome of whatever Olympics competitions they were trying to watch than, you know, about this hostage situation. Correct. Which is probably why that was where the, they kind of assumed the public pressure was. And again, that's probably why nowadays, because of social media, everyone would become immediately more invested in the hostage situation because of it right. would be in their face yeah. 24-7. And it wouldn't make sense for them to continue with any kind of competition, at least till it was resolved. And even then, I think you'd take a... a woman's, I could see them taking like a week of mourning before continuing the games or something if it happened today. So the German authorities agreed to have uh, two helicopters fly the... the Basically, the, the terrorists said, hey, we want, we want to go to an Arab country. We're not going to tell you which one, but we want to go to the airport and we want to leave. So get us a plane and fly us our own helicopters. So they said, okay, we'll do that. What the authorities decided to do was to use this as an opportunity to uh, try and ambush the terrorists, but it did not go well. Um, you see this in the movie. Basically, these two helicopters fly the terror, the uh, surviving hostages, so nine hostages and eight hostage takers, to the first and Felbrook NATO airbase, where they had the a, a Boeing seven twenty seven was on the tarmac. It had flight crew on it that were, you know, they were German police disguised as flight crew, um, but they left prior to the terrorists getting there. So just like in the movie, the terrorists show up, they go to the plane, it's empty. They realize that it's a trap. And then they are, they start being fired upon by these uh, police snipers, which is a generous term calling the snipers because none of these cops had been given any special sniper training or even train on the weapons that they were using. And they didn't have any night vision and they didn't have any telescopic uh, sights for the rifles. So they are just shooting rifles from the control tower in the direction of these terrorists. Uh, they, they do end up killing five of the terrorists, but not before those five terrorists or the, the eight terrorists, I guess, are able to kill one uh, German police officer and all nine of the remaining hostages. So there's another thing, too. Again, if this happened today... Well, again, history, history, you know, everybody has the knowledge of history. So, you know, maybe the terrorists are a little more aware of these kinds of things happening or that an ambush could happen in this scenario. But I feel like, and, and not to be like, well, the Americans would have done it right, but I just feel like, yeah, modern military and training, I think, like, oh, if they do this and they fall for showing up there and you got the snipers in place that are actually trained on their weapons with, like you said, all the gear they need, it's basically, yeah, nine shots and it's over. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you see this, you see this too, honestly, throughout the 70s, hijacking. You know, well, hostage taking and airline hijacking becomes a popular method for terrorists to try and get what they want. And the responses to it just keeps getting better and better to where eventually it's like it's not even mm. worth it. Obviously, you know, 9-11 was a hugely successful terrorist attack. But outside of that, like for the most part, hijacking airplanes, it just it, it's not worth it anymore because it, they get so good at responding to it. And, you know, you have after after this um, specific incident, after the, uh, the Munich massacre, you see, you know, organizations like the French stand up GIGN, which is their national anti-terrorism organization. They stand up in, in 1974. Uh, the Germans have uh, GSG9, which is their anti-terrorism organization, which actually so the Munich massacre ended on the 6th of September in 1972. On the 26th of September 1972, Germany sets up an organization for their federal police force whose only job is to do anti-terrorism. So, you know, okay. you, basically you have uh, all these countries start to take the threat of 
hijackings and hostage takings and terrorism in general uh, way more seriously. But, you know, Israel was ahead of the game on all this. I mean, they had Mossad already definitely in, in 1972. Kind of a necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing. Yeah. The countries who had to deal with it the most had already kind of made yep. adjustments and others were kind of slower to the game. And so, yes, then the, the, the bulk of the movie itself then follows the Israeli response. But again, kind of like you were saying earlier with the stuff not being ever admitted to. And so this is basically a fictionalized version of the Operation Wrath of God that may or may not or likely happened in some capacity because some of these guys were assassinated. So like yes. that is accurate. But to what extent it was actually the Israeli government coordinating it. And then the idea that it was just a small team that didn't happen. It was, you know, multiple right. teams or more people and it spread out more. And it wasn't necessarily targeted on just the Munich thing. It was it had a wider mandate than that. Yes. So it, we, we can talk about the movie, but it's it is a fictionalized movie of realistic events if that makes sense so it's kind of this i don't think we've had a movie that i could really compare it to that we've had in this project so far where it's like eh, some version of this happened but not with these characters and not in this way yeah that makes sense yeah so our main character is eric banna and he his character oh yeah he's based on um yuval yuval aviv yeah yeah but it, the his his name in the movie is something different. It's a fictionalized guy, basically. Yes, yes. In the right, movie, yeah. he's Avner, and yeah. So I, we'll just kind of talk about the movie since we don't necessarily know the details of what really happened, and we can just kind of know there was something mm-hmm. in this ballpark. So he's putting he's put in charge of this team of essentially five assassins, and they even kind of make a point of firing him from his or having him resign from his government job and like do all the paperwork so if anybody asks it's like right. well he doesn't work for us and on paper he doesn't work for them and they're kind of paying him through a security deposit deposit box and so it's very much you know this kind of spy assassin movie and that's the bulk of what the movie is but they do kind of take a different take where i wouldn't necessarily even call it an action or an adventure movie of any kind it's more of a character drama focusing on this guy dealing with well, one, just the danger that he's in and trying to get back home to his family and just, you know, getting to know these people. And then also the whole idea of I'm okay with this being punishing those involved with the Munich thing, but I don't want this to be, well, these people may attack us in the future, but haven't done anything yet, and I need to take them out anyway. And just the little amb- the whole ambiguity of that. And they make a big point to not have the innocent bystanders specifically that one guy's daughter killed it's kind of a big deal that they want to try to avoid and that's kind of the bulk of the movie is i'm trying to track these guys down while his team slowly gets picked off one by one too and they're maybe they may be being hunted yeah. at the same time and it's an interesting film it is an interesting film and it, it's, it's worth oh, watching. It, and it i mean a, a big chunk of the movie is fictional a lot of the uh the hostage like the uh, you know the 1972 massacre events are are pretty accurate Um, but even the the subsequent stuff you know where they're hunting these terrorists around europe it does intersect with real life events at a couple points um like you see the raid that they go on in uh lebanon where they dress up as uh they dress up as as uh women with the dresses and stuff to be able to get close to the uh plo guys that that really happened um they show the hijacking of uh, Lufthansa 615. So that was where the uh, basically PLO hijacked a German airplane and said, give us the uh, hostages that you have from the Munich massacre and let us fly them to Libya. 
and we'll give you the Germans on this plane. And the German government like immediately agreed and gave up, gave up the, uh, mm. the, the three terrorists. Um, so we see that in the movie, but there are, there's also is some stuff left out. So like operation wrath of God, there was at least one time, I think it was in Norway or Sweden. Yeah. No, yeah. It's Norway. Cause they call it the, it's even called the Lilyhammer affair or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Where they, they murdered a guy who wasn't a terrorist. He wasn't affiliated with black September or PLO. Um, I think he just kind of looked like um, the guy in the movie you're looking for, Sal- uh, Salame. Uh, yeah, Ali yeah, Salame. Yeah, yeah, Ali Salame. And they, they killed him, and uh, it, it wasn't him. It was just like some Middle Eastern guy that lived in Norway. Yeah. Random dude. So that, you know, they left stuff like that out. But um, Which the movie kind of took some slack for. Actually, that's what I was, didn't realize, too. Of course, it's not necessarily on our radar, but kind of looking through the Wikipedia page on the movie there is... This was considered very controversial, which is interesting. So a lot of them were even kind of saying they were seeing it as an indictment of Israeli actions. And they're basically saying it's like it was trying to humanize the Palestinian terrorists. And I guess I didn't really read the movie that way. I mean, it's not like you're saying you're it's not it's not making the main characters the villains, but it is kind of showing there's ambiguity. But I almost feel like the main the criticism is is denying the fact there's there's any ambiguity. It, it's kind of what we talked about a million times before. We're not we would never justify the terrorist actions of the Palestinians, but to live in a world where you pretend that the Palestinians have no cause to be angry just seems to be seems to me to be completely right. naive and disingenuous. And so the criticism kind of at the movie, I don't think is necessarily valid. Now, sorry, I have criticism about the movie, sure. and we can get to that. But as far as what they're dealing with ideologically. To me, I felt like it was handled pretty fairly. Or am I being naive? No, I mean, I, I would say, if anything, you know, they they kind of by the violence that the Mossad guys are doing against, you know, then these terrorists, you know, because you have like, you know, Daniel Craig basically gives that. Because well, they're, they're talking about, you know, like, isn't isn't this bothering any of you guys? I think it's the the their documents guy, the old guy in the group says uh you know he's like oh you know sometimes i just have to sit back and remember that you know what we're doing here like we are actually killing people and daniel craig basically goes on this has this monologue where he's talking about like i don't care about anyone except for like jews and israelis and these palestinians are these these plo guys they're killing israelis they're killing jews so i'm going to kill them and i'm not going to feel bad about it and the way that it's portrayed is it's you are sympathetic to to their cause to we are going to kill these people. We don't care if it's extrajudicial, whether we see evidence that these guys need to be killed. We are going to kill them because we believe, well, not even we believe our government tells us that they want to kill Jews. So better safe than sorry, better blow them up. Right. And we do see Eric Bana's character having a little bit of misgivings about that near the end where he actually even straight up says like, hey, if I'm going to keep doing this, I want proof. I want you to show me the documentation that the people we killed were the people responsible specifically for Munich. And Jeffrey Rush's character kind of says like, yeah, that's not going to (laughs) happen. And we were, yeah, I mean, we weren't using you, but you were doing what needed to be done. And And I don't want any of that to sound like I'm trying to feel sorry for terrorists because obviously the people that perpetrated the plan and executed the, the 1972 Munich Olympics massacre or any terrorist attack for that matter are horrible. And do I necessarily feel bad if they get killed? No, but I also 
see where there is an issue with just having secret agents going out into the world and just blowing people up on little to no evidence. If that happened, I mean, you know, for a lot of the stuff in this movie, we don't even know if it happened at all, or you know, right. a lot of it's fictional anyway. But yeah, and and again, it's just at the end of the day, it's this whole oh, the eye for an eye, leaving the whole world blind thing. It's like, yeah, you both got beef, and it's a uh, it's the Battle of Algiers all over again, and it, it, where it's the the you know the native population wants sovereignty, and they only have one means to resort to, and then the other side, you know, is trying to stop them using torture, and it's like two bads and i'm not saying yep. i don't know i we're not going to get into the you know the nitty-gritty of israel and palestine there's the scene in the movie where they get um kind of tricked into sharing that they get tricked into sharing the safe house uh the mossad yes. guys with the that was yeah with the plo guys that was interesting and he and eric Bana is having a conversation with this plo guy about the conflict and they're both both of them are like i want my family to live in the land that is Israel and I will die and I'm willing to, you know, die and kill to make that happen. And even if it takes a hundred generations, I don't care. Like I want my family to be there. And they're, that's how they both feel about it. Right. Well, yeah, which is why I, I personally have always been an advocate for the two state solution. Of course, not realizing until today that most of the world does recognize that that's already happening. But then you don't have the Israelis respecting the areas that are supposedly designated as Palestinian and continue with their settlements. And if the Israelis have a, a right to a homeland, then so do the Palestinians. And we've already drawn some of those borders. And there's a way to. I'm not trying to solve Middle East peace here, I guess, but there's a way to make it work if both sides would just respect the boundaries that have been agreed upon in the past, but then keep getting moved or or they're putting it in such a way that I, I kind of you know watched a YouTube video today where it's like, okay, there's different tiers of the areas and like, okay, we kind of agree upon this. Oh, but we draw the lines this way. Well, the Israelis now have all the resources. So yeah, the Palestinians got some land that they can have some autonomy in, but they don't have the resources you need to like, you know, live. Yeah. And just, it's complicated, and both sides are just too stubborn, and there's too much bad blood for them to come to the table in good faith for any length of time. And it's going to continue to be an issue, right. definitely. I mean, I don't see an end to this, despite, you know, Jerry Kushner's best efforts. <laughs> hey, I delivered that with a straight face. <laughs> so, with the movie itself, again, I've never been a huge huge Spielberg fan on one side but at the same time I definitely respect a lot of his work and a lot of his movies are really good and I appreciate his role in the history of filmmaking to me he's always just too impersonal a lot of the time and just he's great a great filmmaker but rarely tackles subjects maybe as interesting as as Munich here but what I remembered from the theater I hadn't seen this since I saw it in the theater back in 05 06 whenever and I wasn't a huge fan. I remember being kind of disappointed that it was nominated for Best Picture. I felt it was just kind of, oh, you know, generic war type, you know, assassin movie. Now, and watching it a second time here, I was more impressed with it. I was like, okay, no, this is, this is solid. This is really good. I, I, I get what they're going for here. But then the same scene that stuck in my mind from the theater, I knew it was coming. And it's, I don't know. And, and you can tell me if I'm missing something here. The ending to this movie where they juxtapose the killing of the hostages in Munich with the sex scene with his wife is just stupid. It's Yeah, that's super weird. I've seen this movie probably five or six times, and I, I have no idea what they were going for there. It doesn't make any sense. 
right. It, 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 it's <laughs> dumb. Yeah. It's just straight up dumb. You could, yeah. There's no some. There's no deeper meaning. Like he's trying. To, he's, he's trying to make some parallel there. It seems, but the, maybe Eric Banner's character is distracted and always haunted by this thing. Okay, but why are you illustrating that while he's having sex with his wife? Yeah, but it's, it, it's bizarre. the way that they the way that they shoot it. It's or the, the way that it's edited. It makes it look like he's having a flashback to that, which would make sense if he was there, but he wasn't there. Right, and they're almost kind of making it like that flashback to that scene that he wasn't at is somehow turning him on yeah <laughs> and somehow somehow that's working its way into the sex and it's i think it's just straight dumb it in, in my mind it almost yeah. ruins the whole movie and it's just so out of place it makes no sense and of course again you think of spielberg it's like how many sex scenes are there in spielberg movies ever and then this is the one he chooses to to have well, and it's and, just and when you, weird <laughs> when you like you're watching the movie you know if if you have at least a general understanding of how the 1972 Munich massacre went down, because they, they 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 don't show it all at once. They show like it's like interspersed throughout the movie, Correct. like uh, you know parts parts yes. of, the, of the massacre, and and so that makes sense. And yes. it's like oh, okay, when we're we gonna when are we gonna get to the airport? When are we gonna get to the airport? And then you're waiting for it the whole movie, and then at the very end you finally get it, but it's intercut, yeah, with this weird sex scene that doesn't make any sense. Right, and it seems like an easy edit, or you could do those as two separate scenes. But I, I, yeah, I, I can respect the way they kind of broke that up throughout the movie and built to the, oh my gosh, this is, I'm just even the way I'm going to say this. And then they built to the climax of that incident. I'm like, what are we doing, Spielberg? This is just idiotic. And so the film was nominated for Best Picture. And so it was not yeah. for five awards in total, but didn't didn't win any of them. Best picture, best director, best adapted screenplay, film editing, and he once again, boy John boy Williams, John Williams yep. for the score. Which the, the music in this movie is really good. Um, it, you know, it doesn't have like a super catchy theme song or something, but true. I mean, it's Spielberg. The filmmaking is great, but it's not a great film. But there's definitely some elements. I just think it's funny that like, oh, you know. John Williams, you know, his like middle of the road, like middling, you know, probably relatively low effort score still gets nominated for an Oscar that year. <laughs> right. And it is ultimately, a, it's a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. And, you know, I'd probably put it a hair lower, but I mean, it's, that's probably about right where it's, it's solid, but f- definitely flawed, both from a historical standpoint and again, just the bizarre ending that just kind of undercuts. I feel like it cuts the legs out from the rest of the film that is otherwise pretty darn solid. Yeah. And I don't know if other critics felt that that way, but so as far as bringing the Israeli Palestinian conflict to the present, in some ways we kind of already have, it's not much different today than it was when this happened 40 years ago, or almost 50 years ago. So it's just kind of a continued conflict with the, you know, Palestinians wanting their autonomy and, Israel still being the stronger power in the region with the United States always as they're having their back. And again, we talked about before and we'll get to it as we get more into terrorist activities in the rest of the timeline here. But I mean, a lot of it has to do, I think, with the U.S. openly backing Israel and the Arab world not being pleased with us messing with their world. It's, It's kind of the whole you know what right do we have and yes we have an interest in promoting democracy in the middle east but to pretend that that doesn't then trigger arabs and muslims in that world to have resentment towards us is naive and but again we'll get to that as we get more into the future decades here on the on the timeline one thing that i have in my notes 
one of the rare comedy scenes, I guess, where um, Eric Bana is talking to that accountant and he keeps telling about how he, you know, I need receipts, I need receipts. And the accountant calls Eric Bana a yeki, which is like a, it's a slang term that means, I, I think it's, it's specifically, you know, like a, a German, like a someone of German Jewish descent. Um, but I think it can also kind of be used as to mean just a Jew who lives in Israel who isn't from there. But he calls him he calls him a yeki. He says, I'm not a yeki. I was born here. And he says, where's your grandfather born? And he says, the Ukraine. Mm. He goes, you're a yeki. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I even missed the use of that term. I couldn't I couldn't even tell what he was saying. Oh, no. You know what it is? I thought he was saying Yankee. Oh. And I, I was like, okay, they're just saying you might as well be American if you're not Israeli kind of thing. Was the way I was taking that. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so next week we're headed to 1973. Munich started in 1972, and then we kind of went into the years past that with as they were dealing with some things. But we're going to go to 1973, back to Southeast Asia, where we were to kind of start this season. This time to Cambodia with the Killing Fields. <laughs> <laughs> 